Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Stimulus struggles, Congress debates more aid as thousands more Americans request first-time help. Injection impact, the UK prepares for vaccine delivery as Russia boosts production. And delisting drama, the US prepares laws that could eject Chinese firms from US stock markets. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Thank you for joining us on a day of new hopes, but also new heartbreaks in the global pandemic. The U.S. yesterday recording both its highest ever death toll and the highest level of hospitalizations. Meanwhile, in Germany, set to extend its partial lockdown restrictions until January of 2021. Cases, meanwhile, have hit records in Russia and in Indonesia. And cases in Iran have just surpassed the one million milestone. And yet, hopes for vaccines couldn't be higher at this moment. The UK health officials saying today that a first shipment of the Pfizer biotech jab will arrive there within hours. And US health officials meet to potentially green light that same vaccine next week, as we've been discussing this week already. Meanwhile, Russia will open mass vaccination centers in Moscow on Saturday. We'll head there later in the show for full details of that. It was this medicinal momentum that meant bumper stock market gains throughout November, including more than 10% gains for the Dow. Now what we're seeing, I think, is a bit of consolidation as investors measure longer-term hopes against, as I've mentioned, shorter-term challenges. The science is coming. The stimulus or financial aid, at least here in the United States, remains less certain, even as a further 712,000 Americans signed up for jobless benefits last week. That's a sizable drop from the previous reading on the week before. But got to keep this in perspective. More than 20 million Americans are still getting some form of an assistance. And an estimated 12 million of those could lose that support by the end of this month. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, I'm trying to decide which number to to talk to you about here. The fact that the 712,000 people mean that the number came down. It's still an shockingly high number. Or the fact that of the 20 million Americans, over half of them could lose that help this month. I know. You know, I look at that decline in the number, the 712,000 number. It's a direction you want to see. But it was a Thanksgiving week in the United States last week. That means there was probably a day and a half there where people weren't filing for first-time jobless benefits. So I think that could have been some noise in that number. And you step back, you know, every week when we look at what's called this high-frequency data, you know, it's the it's the little changes in direction that we're trying to glean some, some information from. But it's really the level of the data that really, really concerns me. You've got 30 seven weeks now of, of unemployment, first-time unemployment claims that would have been a record in any time before this pandemic. 37 weeks in a row, any one of those weeks would have been devastating and blown away the record of any time pre-pandemic. So I think that shows you just how deep the pain is. I know there's some questions. The GAO, the Government Accountability Office, has said they're concerned there might be some uh, double counts or miscounting in some of these numbers because simply the crush of layoffs 
the crush of the jobs crisis is so big that the numbers can't keep up. So I think what that tells you is this is a flashing red light for Congress. Their hair should be on fire to make sure that the people who are going to lose benefits and lose benefits soon don't fall off a financial cliff here. Yeah, it's such a great point, Christine, and you made it so eloquently there. You know, I point to the the people who should know when they look at these numbers, just how unprecedented they are. Alan Greenspan, when I spoke to him a, a week and a half ago, and he said, look, I, we don't have rule books. I've never seen this before. And this is a man that's been looking at numbers like this for 70 years, seven decades or more, quite frankly. Uh, we've had Janet Yellen calling it a tragedy. Congress has to act. You and I, sceptical, I think, of the, a meet-in-the-middle prospect here, at least this year, rather than waiting until next year and, you know, a new government and seeing what they can do. Is there any hope? You know, my concern is that in Washington, they're not feeling this heat. Why? Because the stock market is setting records. So on Wall Street, the heat from what is a jobs crisis is not really reflected. In Washington, inside the Beltway, there's not the heat from the job crisis, really. The elections are behind them and and Wall Street is doing fine. I'm really concerned that the kitchen table fallout from this is being completely ignored. And you've got politics. And I've I've seen this before. We saw this during the financial crisis um, 12 years ago. However, then the stock market was falling apart. So there was a little more urgency in Washington. But I'm really concerned about scarring, permanently scarring the labor market um, if if they don't really do something quickly to help small businesses and to at least just help the unemployed right here. Yeah, it's such a great point. The longer people are out of the workforce, the harder it is to come back into the workforce and find a job. And unfortunately, these big businesses have louder voices in D.C. when actually they should be listening to the small guy on the street that's struggling, the families that are going to food banks and the small businesses that are going out of business because they don't have help. Christine, thank you. We'll keep fighting there. Fight for them. (laughs) We'll try. Christine Raymonds, thank you. In the midst of this economic crisis, the human toll gets worse and worse. Yesterday, just over 2,800 COVID-19 deaths were reported in the United States. Nearly 14 million people have been infected so far. Hospitalizations remain at an all-time high. And the system is buckling, as Adrian Brodus reports. Across the United States, the coronavirus pandemic passing devastating milestones this morning. No way to sugarcoat it. It is the deadliest day that we have had. The country recording the most deaths in one day since the pandemic began. And more than 100,000 people are in the hospital with the disease. The director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warns that number will only increase, saying there could be close to 450,000 deaths by February. I actually believe they're going to be the most difficult time in the public health history of this nation, uh, largely because of the stress that it's going to put on our health care system. Los Angeles County this week reporting its highest number of people in the hospital with the virus. And with new cases on the rise, the city's mayor enforcing a stricter, safer at home order. It's time to hunker down. It's time to cancel everything. And if it isn't essential, don't do it. Health experts are bracing for an even higher number of new cases and hospitalization in the upcoming weeks when infections stemming from Thanksgiving gatherings surge. 
This pushing the CDC to again call for people to cancel travel plans for the winter holidays. It's likely that unless really major efforts are to push harder with the public health measures, we could be facing the kind of circumstance that we really hoped not to, where many hospitals just run out of capabilities to take care of all the sick patients. According to Operation Warp Speed, the first shipments of Pfizer's vaccine will be delivered on December 15th and Moderna's one week later on the 22nd. Both still need FDA approval. Federal officials say 40 million doses should be available by the end of December, enough for 20 million people to be vaccinated. Between December and end of February, we will have potentially immunized 100 million people, which is really more or less the size of the significant at-risk population, the elderly, the uh, healthcare workers, the first-line workers. Adrian Brodus reporting there. Let's talk about vaccines. The UK says it expects the first doses of the newly approved BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine to arrive in the country today. Distribution, of course, begins next week. Here in the United States, three former presidents have said they would take an FDA-authorized vaccine in public and on camera. President Barack Obama, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton aiming to promote public confidence in a vaccine cleared by regulators. Meanwhile, in Russia, the President Putin has ordered his government to start large-scale COVID vaccinations next week. Russia was the first country to approve its coronavirus vaccine, the Sputnik V, back in August. Matthew Chance joins us now to discuss. Matthew, great to have you with us. What are we talking about in terms of mass-scale vaccinations? How much production capability do they have and doses do they have ready to do so? So um, according to the Russian president speaking yesterday on a sort of televised sort of video conference with his government ministers, they've got two million doses of Sputnik V, uh, this Russian-made uh, vaccine, which is still under, you know, in part of its uh, undergoing sort of third phase uh, human trials. Two million doses. Now, you need two doses uh, for each person, so that's enough to vaccinate one million people. Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, said he wanted that large-scale vaccination effort to begin as early as next week. And in fact, the Moscow authorities within the past couple of hours have said that they're going to be setting up mass vaccination centres in this city, the Russian capital, 70 of them all over the city uh, from the weekend, from, from Saturday the 5th. And so that effort is getting into full swing here. In terms of the production capability, it's a country of 140 million people, they're going to need a lot more uh, vaccine. The uh, Russian authorities that are overseeing the production are saying that they hope to have between five and seven million doses ready uh, by the end of the year or at least an, in, in, into January. And so, look, I mean, they've had some issues, I think, with their production capability. They've had to refit some of their production centres and that's set them back in terms of the volume of vaccines that they're able to manufacture here in Russia and deliver to, to Russian people. Having said that, um, already, according to the Russian health minister, 100,000, more than 100,000 people in Russia have received Sputnik V. Most of those people are people taking part in trials. They're people in the military, they're frontline medical workers, uh, teachers as well. 
all of those kinds of individuals, or a lot of those individuals, 100,000 of them or more, have already received the vaccine. And obviously what the Russians want to do now, like any other country in the world, they want to step up as much as possible uh, that vaccine vaccination program to, to end this pandemic as soon as they possibly can in this country. Absolutely, as every nation does. Matthew Chance, thank you so much for that update there. All right, let's move on. The U.S. House of Representatives passing a bill that would prevent Chinese companies from trading on Wall Street unless they comply with audit oversight rules. President Trump could sign it into law quickly because the Senate already approved the bill earlier this year. David Cover is live in Beijing with more. David, great to have you with us. It will clearly mean more enhanced scrutiny of these Chinese companies and certainly the numbers that they present. But the United States will say, look, this is about protecting American investors and their money versus perhaps tackling and being more fierce about Chinese companies. How do the Chinese view it? Hey there, Julia. Good to be with you as well. And just when we thought perhaps the election might have calmed things between the U.S. and China, we've got this new turn. I mean, as as far as what this House bill would first do, as you point out, this would prevent the companies uh, that refuse to open their books to U.S. accounting regulators from trading on U.S. stock exchanges. Now, the legislation, interestingly enough, had bipartisan support within the U.S., And while it would apply to any foreign company, it's obvious that China is the focus here. It's because China requires companies that are traded overseas to keep their audit papers here in mainland China, thereby blocking foreign agencies from reviewing their books. Now, this bill would require all U.S. listed companies to disclose whether they are owned or controlled by a foreign government. That includes China's Communist Party. So to become law, as you point out, President Donald Trump's got to sign the bill. It would give him another way to put pressure on China before he leaves office in January. We know the administration already blames China for mishandling the coronavirus pandemic. It's come down on Beijing's tightening grip over Hong Kong and its alleged human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Trump also has gone after Chinese companies, TikTok, Huawei, to name a couple. Because of the worsening relationship, it seems several Chinese companies have announced secondary listings on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. This seems to be a contingency plan. It's not known, though, how immediate the impact would be if this bill becomes a law. Some analysts have said it could take years before a company that refuses to open its books is forced to delist. Meantime, Julia, we know that officials here in Beijing... They are not happy. They're reacting strongly, saying the U.S. is politicizing securities regulation by setting up barriers, as they put it. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I read that you'd have to fail to comply with U.S. audit requirements for three years in a row in order to risk being ejected from um, your U.S. stock market listing. But I love the point about the contingency, the hedging here by doing the secondary listing in uh, in Hong Kong or perhaps even indeed in China as well. David, I wanted to ask you about the point that you made as well about the consistency or the continuity and pressure under uh, President Biden, too. I read that interview with Tom Friedman from The New York Times with President-elect Biden saying, hey, look, we want a global consensus on how to handle China. For now, the tariffs that the United States and President Trump imposed will remain interesting. It is. And Julia, we've heard throughout the campaign, the foreign policy, probably the number one foreign policy point was being tough on China. And so you would imagine that will continue under Biden. Here's what also is quite fascinating. I sat down today with a professor at the University of International Business and Economics here in Beijing. And one thing that he pointed out, as he tends to have a pro-China view of things, is that initially there was a lot of concern with 
dealing with Trump, mostly because they felt like he was completely unpredictable in things. Uh, However, they felt like Trump at least provided here within China a, a unity. He's considered, in fact, his Chinese nickname was Nation Builder, referring to building up the Chinese nation because it united the people here. The concern with a Biden administration is that there will be unity amongst the allies, something that Trump didn't always get to do. And in fact, you could look at one ally in particular, Australia, which if you look between the U.S. and China and Australia, we know that Australia relies on the U.S. for security, but You could say it relies on China for prosperity. However, the relationship between those two countries has been worsening. Biden could be that person who can bring them together, meaning the Western democracies, and put more pressure on Beijing. That said, the same expert that I spoke to today, Julia, said that with a Biden administration, you could at least perhaps look at coming to the table. There would be dialogue, right? Yes. Less unpredictable in terms of the engagement, perhaps, between the United States and China. But what a fascinating point. Rather than the United States that's tackling different nations at different times and in different ways, a Western consensus over how to tackle China could be very potent and um, more of a challenge, perhaps, in China than what they've been through in the past few years. Fascinating. David, always great to have you on the show. Thank you. David Culver. All right, still to come here on First Move. Entrepreneurial spirit, American small businesses get creative in the struggle for survival. We're joined by the CEO of Gravity Payments to discuss what they're going through. And small is the new big, says the CEO of hotel chain Oyo. He joins us later in the show for his take on the future of travel. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. It's been a subdued pre-market in the United States after the S&P's record close on Wednesday. Investors clearly encouraged and continue to be by all the vaccine news out this week. But as with ordinary Americans, still hoping for fresh action on emergency aid. News, the first time jobless claims rose by a further 712,000 people last week, only heightens the need for more help from Washington. Also, manufacturer 3M announcing today it will cut a further near 3,000 jobs globally. That's around 3% of its workforce, with Republicans and Democrats still far apart on a stimulus or financial aid deal for the economy. America's small businesses are putting their renowned creativity into the struggle for survival. Among them is credit card processing company Gravity Payments. Earlier this year, its employees willingly took a pay cut. Now its CEO is promising to backdate pay rises once the company recovers. Joining us is Dan Price, CEO of Gravity Payments. Dan, always great to have you on the show. You process payments for, what, around 20,000 small businesses. Just give us a sense of of what you've seen, not only throughout the peak of the crisis, but up to what we're seeing today. Well, Julia, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm sorry to say it's a, it's a really difficult situation yeah. right now. A lot of these small businesses, you know, they've, they've really done nothing wrong. They, they created great businesses, uh, very much in line with what we're all wanting. And we need them in some cases to, you know, uh, change their business or uh, the government's required them to stay closed in certain situations. And so what we've seen is 30% of those small businesses have gone under but the 70% that are still in business, they are struggling and they're in danger of joining that 30%. And this at a time when Amazon and Walmart are looking at doubling in terms of their profit and they're using that advantage 
to continue to throttle the small business uh, world. And so we really need to assist these small businesses if we want to have a vital economy going forward. And it would be a shame just for six or nine months or something like that to lose all those small businesses and then be in a world where the major corporations were controlling everything. I mean, Dan, that's a shocking statistic. 30% of the small businesses that, that you were looking after and working with gone out of business since the pandemic began. And I'm assuming these were healthy businesses before the pandemic. There was no reason if they'd have been given support to get through this period that they couldn't have remained in business. Yeah, I'll give you a perfect example. There's a there's a business here in Seattle called the Fat Hen, and it's close to our office. Um, and, you know, it was it's an amazing place. People go there and they make really artistic, wonderful food. They sustain it uh, in a very socially and ethically responsible way. And people love going there because you get that kind of artsy foodie experience for a really good price. That doesn't translate well to this kind of high efficiency to go food where you're just yeah. trying to control costs. And so we all want this business to still be around six months from now. The entire community does. But when you have a government lockdown to protect our public health system, this business needs an assistance and we have options. We can extend the PPP program. We can do all sorts of things and we can also support their employees in a way that allows them to close down, you know, stay safe and then reopen and cut costs. Rent is also a major problem because landlords, even my own landlord, uh, where our office has been closed since March, is saying, we're not going to cut you any kind of a deal. And so without some type of protection or legislation or something to solve some of these problems, you know, Gravity, we've been able to overcome some of these things. But a business like the Fat Hen, they don't have the same flexibility because of what their core competencies are. And yet we want to protect this business. We don't want to be eating at Applebee's and McDonald's, you know, six months from now. Yeah, it favours it favors the chain restaurants or the franchisees that have some big parent perhaps that can, they can go to and say, hey, can you, can you just see us through or provide some support? If you're an individual small business, a mom and pop style small business, you're kind of on your own. You are. And you did make a good point, though. The ingenuity that we're seeing is fantastic. So I'm really proud one of our employees at Gravity, uh, Austin Kameen, he volunteered to deliver this food personally to try to make it good. And he, for uh, six weekends, volunteered his time on the weekend just to try to keep this business open. So we have solutions like that, which are not sustainable, but we're also uh, creating and seeing the implementation of all sorts of solutions. Like we have a business that we work with called Joe Coffee that provides Starbucks quality order ahead to mom and pop coffee shops. And so what Gravity has been focused on, we've always been a payments company, but now we're focused on working with software companies that can allow these small businesses to compete with the likes of Amazon and Walmart. And Julia, it's worth pointing out that all of our lives are so much better with small businesses. They're the main driver of, of new employment. They account for 50% of our GDP. So this is an issue of national security, of national health for the very long term. And I can't stress enough that we all need to come together and support them in whatever way we can so that they're still around. Dan, what do you make of what's going on in Congress? I mean, we've had <laughs> plans proposed, different size plans, actually a lot of agreement on needing to provide 
a bump up again, once again, in, in unemployment benefits, broader support, pandemic assistance, small business support. They have agreement. They just can't agree in totality. Yeah, well, I, I'm reminded I went to a presentation one time uh, about it. It was a consultant. He was talking about how the best investment that large corporations can make is in lobbying efforts and in efforts mm-hmm. to basically manipulate, you know, the United States Congress and the federal institutions and the state and local institutions. These are supposed to be institutions that are controlled by the will of the people. But more and more, we see corporations controlling them. And a perfect example is Mitch McConnell and the Senate has said, we will provide some measure of relief if we can allow the businesses to go ahead and act with impunity. And if people die or get sick, they can't be held liable. And so you can see the amount of leverage that these large corporations have over our entire system. And of course, if we give them that leverage, they're going to squeeze small businesses. And so while we all kind of like fight and and have things get divisive and pick our teams and engage in this type of tribalism, the politicians can really be controlled by the corporations and enrich themselves. If you look at the politicians, so many of them are millionaires. So many of them, like from my home state in Idaho, Jim Rich, a senator, you know, he started not as a millionaire. Now he's a multimillionaire and he's been a politician his entire life. How did that happen? And we're seeing that all over the place. It's because of the influence of corporations. We have to find a way to get that under control. What's the answer, Dan? Do we need you to go into politics to uh, fight for the little guy, quite frankly? And actually, you make so many points and I always run out of time talking to you. But, you know, you took a pay cut when the crisis happened. You said, look, I'm going to have to lose 20 percent of my employees. And yet your employees themselves decided to take a pay cut in order to keep everybody together. And we've talked about this on the show before. You know, there will be some small businesses that say, look, we can't provide our workers with a living living wage. We won't stay in business if we do. Like minimum wage is even tough for us. Dan, what's the biggest solution here? Is it more government? Is it better government, less government? What's the answer? Well, in the short term, it's pretty easy. We need to extend the PPP. We need to have some sort of structure like a like a, a, a moratorium on rent where where there's also forgiveness uh, for the mortgage holder, for the landlord in that scenario. They have some process and we need to extend the PPP loan and, and come up with other solutions. And we need to put money into the hands of everyday Americans. That more than anything help small business, help entrepreneurship, because these large companies, when they have so much financial leverage over us, we basically have to do their bidding. So those are the short-term measures. But in the long term, we need structural change. Things like ranked choice voting, you know, uh, considering things like the filibuster, you know, the composition of the Senate, the Electoral College, all of these mechanisms that are basically allowing us to be controlled by wealthy and corporations, we can make some of those changes. And Julia, I I don't really think it's any one person. So I don't think if I, for example, became a politician tomorrow, it would really solve the problem. I think what we have to do is we have to come together. And I appreciate what you said about gravity. I think we showed how you can come together because we have people of all political backgrounds that work at the company, but we care about each other and we're working together. If we can allow something like that to spread at the rate that the virus has spread at times over the past year, then we can solve this together. And if we don't, the future is gonna look much more dark than it is today. Yeah, and it has to start somewhere and it has to start now. 
Dan, always great to chat to you. And thank you for your wisdom. And I agree with you. Short term is easy. Longer term structural issues are tough. Short term, easy. Get money to people and just support the economy for now. Dan Price, CEO of Gravity Payments. Great to chat to you, sir, as always. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are open for trade this Thursday, and we've got consolidation going on. We're high by some three-tenths of 1% for the Dow and the Nasdaq. I think investors continue to weigh imminent vaccine shipments on the one hand and hopes for a future recovery versus record COVID cases and hospitalizations here in the United States, at least on the other. The Dow up more than 10% since early November. What a month it was. It's filled with the cyclical stocks that could outperform, of course, the Dow when we start getting shots and stimulus. We've seen huge rotation into value, of course, too. Global markets are doing even better, though. The MSCI World ETF up almost 13% the past month. Emerging markets keeping up with that pace, too. Morgan Stanley now saying stocks are overbought and at risk for a 10% pullback as U.S. Treasury yields move higher. U.S. yields remain near one-month highs. Plenty to discuss. Alicia Levine joins us now. She's Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. Alicia, great to have you on the show as always. Stocks had a bump a month. At least in the short term, can we continue to see this kind of positive momentum in your view? Hi, Julia. Great to see you for a new month. So, Mm. yes, Stocks did have a banner month in November, not just here, but globally. As you know, Europe had one of the best months ever on record in the month of November. And so the question that's really surrounding everyone is, well, we know the fundamentals are going to be a little bit soft in the next few months with with regional lockdowns as the coronavirus sort of ravages of economies. But then on the other side, we have we have the vaccines coming. So how does this play in the market, right? And that's really the tug of war. So do, you, do we think that we pulled some of December's returns into November? Probably a little bit, but not entirely. And I say that because if you look at the history of months where the market's up double digits, which is what November was, you tend to have positive returns over the next six to 12 months. And the last time that we had two months in a calendar year that were up double digits, we have it this year, April and November. The last time that happened was 1982. And if you go back in time, you realize what a huge bull run we had starting in 1982. So just keep that in mind when you think about can the bull run continue after November. I also look at some of the things like the greed index that CNN runs as well and the amount of bullishness out there. And they're all at extreme levels. And when I see that kind of thing, particularly bearing in mind what you just said, um, consolidation, nervousness perhaps filtering in at some point makes sense, particularly given that the fundamental backdrop that we see here. Right. So we, we were, we're talking about this period as we're, we're coming to the air pocket. And yes. in a sense, you know, we can't get there from here without going through the air pocket of slower growth, maybe some higher unemployment here in the U.S. And we've seen it in Europe. Growth is going to be negative in the fourth quarter because of the lockdowns. We don't think growth is negative here in the U.S. in the fourth quarter because October was really strong. The issue is how do you leave December? How do you exit December and go into January? And we think it's going to be weak-ish. 
There will be some reaction in the market. We do think there'll be consolidation here. Some kind of testing of the 200-day moving average would be sort of a normal pullback. But we think pullbacks are viable here because we do think there's going to be a boom in the second half of next year. You know, it's fascinating. When you look at the cash on the sidelines, it looks lofty. There's still money that can come into play here. And you can talk me through this. I just wonder when we talk about that, when we talk about a potential future Treasury secretary who's very conscious of the challenges in the economy, and we've got Jay Powell making all the right noises about needing more support, how concerned we are about the risk of seeing interest rate rises in the United States. And to mention once again what I mentioned about Morgan Stanley saying, you know, there's a risk here that we see a recalibration in bond markets and that gives a sort of downside push to stocks. How concerned are you about yeah, the interplay? So look, yeah. Look, that, that's, a great, that's a great point. And right now we're really seeing a bit of a tug of war on the stimulus front between the monetary side and the fiscal mm. side. And the Fed has essentially pleaded with lawmakers to come up with another fiscal package. I'm very, well, more optimistic on that skinnier deal that we've been talking about for the last 24 hours than I was previously in the lame duck session, only because one of the most important things that Joe Biden said two days ago was, let's pass what we can pass now, and then we can do more later once I become president. When he said that, he really gave the green light for the Democrats in the House to start negotiating a much lower number. And so I think there's a way to get to yes here. It's very clear that the employment situation in the U.S. is on a bit of a precipice as we go to the end of the year and those benefits start rolling off. So we do hope to see that. We do think that will stabilize markets. As for the bond market, we do think that there will be some sort of yield curve control if, in fact, bond yields start spiking upwards on the promise of higher growth and the expectations of perhaps higher inflation in that we think the Fed will start buying longer dated maturities in order to, to help control that. So we don't see a full risk of that, but yes, that is a possibility as is a source of cash because most of the flows this year went into the bond market by a five to one margin over the equity market. Yeah, but I'm with you. Any sign of that Any and Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve is going to be straight in to make sure we don't see too much of a a spike in uh, in bond yields here or bond prices coming down. Alicia, always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Alicia Levine, so Chief Strategist at BMI Mellon Investment Management. I was noticing a Star Wars theme there as well over your left shoulder. That was noted. I'm I mean, sure there'll be viewers like, look at that. <laughs> Had to mention. It's the Star Destroyer. Lego. I know it is. <laughs> yes. Clear Star Wars fun here too. Alicia, great to chat. Thank you. All right. After the break, the hotel and hospitality industry hanging on for the vaccine, just like the rest of us. The CEO of one major chain betting on a big recovery. We'll hear from him next. Stay with us. As the hotel industry holds on to hopes for a recovery in 2021, one of the biggest chains out there says it's bullish about the future. Oyo Hotels and Homes operates in 800 cities around the world. It reports that room revenue is between 60 and 80 percent of pre-pandemic levels. And it's also saying it's holding on to close to a billion dollars worth of cash. Now it's focusing, too, on key markets, India, China, Japan and Southeast Asia. Ritesh Agarwal is the founder and group CEO, and he joins us now. Ritesh, great to have you on the show once again. It's good to be positive about the future, but you have to deal with the present. And this year has been a challenge. Talk us through what you're seeing now and where you're most worried 
and also most optimistic. Thank you for having me here, Julia. As you remember, I met you by when I flew in from China to the U.S. Yes. Uh, around the period of time when COVID was just kicking in. So uh, good to be here. Of course, last few months, a lot has changed. I also, uh, you know, have been following your coverage very closely. So when COVID hit, it was tough on us. The business and the gross margin dollars fell by upwards of 66% in a short order of time. And we had to make substantial changes, including that of uh, restructuring talent, sending people on furloughs. Uh, we issued a percent and a half of ownership to our team members to ensure that uh, you know, we did right by them. But what I've seen in the last few months, Julia, is three to four important trends. One, people are itching to get out of their houses. They want to go travel. They want to see uh, places around. Road trips are much, much more in vogue than that of long travels. Basis that globally what we are seeing is India is starting to recover quite significantly, we are, which is one of our biggest markets. We are back to around 40-ish percent of our pre-COVID occupancies here. USA has done surprisingly well, where you see all the budget hotels doing very well. We are back to around 120-130% of revenue and 100% of pre-COVID rev parts. Southeast Asia, we are at 50 to 60% recovery. Europe had a great summer, but as the second version of COVID hits in, we are keeping a very close eye as to what the next summer bookings look like. And China, frankly, has recovered very strongly, and the rev pars are at 75 to 80% of pre-COVID levels. So what I'm seeing in summary, Julia, is that small hotels and holiday homes are the ones that were able to hold on to the crisis relative to, relative to other upmarket products because customers could self-isolate as well as have a good experience close to their houses. Fascinating. So actually, it's the it's the vacation homes, the holiday homes where you can get privacy and you can socially distant versus the hotels that's cushioned the broader business. You also changed the business model as well. Originally, you were sort of a minimum guarantee. I remember discussing this for, for hoteliers in exchange for price controls. And now you've gone to sort of a revenue sharing business model, which which makes sense because you're burden sharing when it's good, it's good. And, and when it's bad, you share the risks. Ritesh, is that a permanent move now? A different business model for the for the for the business. Absolutely, Julia. Mm. As you know, crisis brings clarity. Has been the mantra of all the companies in these times. Uh, and as they say, never waste a crisis. One of my inspirations, Mark Benioff, says this, and I've always uh, followed that. I think through this crisis, we moved our business. Uh, we accelerated our movement towards revenue share. And on the other hand, we ramped up our efforts on technology for our partners. For example, on pricing, we kept pricing control and ensured that we delivered better returns for our partners. For example, like I told you, we kept RevPars, one of the best in the industry. We delivered uh, better customer experience for lower costs. We ensured that our partner NPS improved by 20 to 30 points by means of improved uh, pricing controls, re weekly reconciliation. Sometimes partners, if you remember, Julia, when you spoke to hotel owners, they would say, if we had the choice to make little changes on the pricing, this would have been a much better partnership. We launched a feature called Tariff Manager. So our partners could make a few dollars of changes on both sides. A lot of these things have enabled us to make sure that on one side, 
at a time when we changed our business model, we not only kept our partners together, we were able to deliver them good results. So yes, it is going to be a, a you know a long-term change that we will continue to be a company that comes into the small hotels, gives them increased occupancy with our technology systems, brand, and so on. But uh, take a percentage of the fee uh, if it's doing well. We take a higher fee if it's not doing well. We share the risk. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mentioned that the cash burn this year around $500 million, the the $1 billion that you have in terms of cash on the balance sheet. There will be people going, and I know you and I talked about this and you were were incredibly sad about the people that you had to let go. Even early on in the pandemic and the workers that you've lost, there will be those that look at this and say, hang on a second, you've got all this cash on the balance sheet, you've let workers go, the business seems to be stabilised. Can you bring these people back? How are you thinking about the workforce and, and the challenges of the human aspect of the challenges that the company's been through? Absolutely, Julia. As you can imagine, uh, this was extremely hard for everyone in the hospitality industry, but especially a company like ours, which has so many young people. This was further harder. April 14th, I made a short video and then had a discussion with lots of our oyopreneurs over the last few months. So few things. One, yes, we would absolutely work hard to try and bring back as many oyopreneurs as we can. We turned all our HR organization also as outplacement agents. And we have also not only brought a couple of hundred people back into the system, we are also working hard to ensure that as technology structurally makes changes to some of the departments and organizations, we make people entrepreneurs. A large part of OYO employees are starting to become, for instance, our new hotel partners or hotel operators as partners for us. And we are trying to give them first dips on opportunities such as those. So my view is that in the hospitality industry, as the business stabilizes, jobs and the employment will come back substantially. And you will actually see a lot of people coming out of not just OYO, but also from companies such as Airbnb and others actually become entrepreneurs and become homeowners, small hotel managers and so on, leading to a further rise in the industry in the times to come. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? The evolution of the business in such a short space of time. I remember asking you about pandemic proofing or recession proofing. And um, wow, this has been a period for that. Ritesh, come back and talk to us soon, please. I want to track your progress. Ritesh Agrawal, founder and CEO of Oyo Hotels and Homes. Great to chat to you once again. All right, coming up on First Move, a new effort to support the pandemic-stricken oil market, OPEC and non-OPEC deal negotiations. We've got the latest next. Welcome back to the show. OPEC Plus members meeting right now to discuss a possible extension of those supply cuts. Our man in the know, John Defterius, is live in Abu Dhabi. John, prospects of a deal to extend these cuts. What do you make of it? Well, we're not off to a very good start, Julia. Let's Mm. put it that way. I just got official word by a a tweet here that the meeting started uh, nearly two hours late. They're trying to keep this disparate group of 24 producers glued together after four years of collaboration. We have to remember they uh, came together during the 2016 crisis. And for the most part, over the four years, they've been cutting production. Uh, So where do we stand right now as they sit down and they've had all the backdoor conversations trying to find a compromise? Uh, Sources are suggesting there's kind of three major options on the table. Add a half a million barrels a day starting in January. They think with this 25% gain in November, uh, you have Russia, the UAE, Nigeria, Iraq all saying, come on, let's come back on for some market share. 
wait till February and add a million barrels a day there, or you go down the Saudi path, uh, Julia, and that is let's let it ride for another quarter with cuts of 7.7 million barrels a day, about 8% of the market share. This is why it is so difficult right now. And, and Julia, I think we're in that space in between. You get excited about vaccines, the price recovers, but the second wave is destroying demand again. So it's not an easy job to keep all these players at the table and say, what's the best thing to do? And they're trying to find the middle ground right now. And that is not easy as prices rise, because if they get too high, you know what happens, Julia, the shale producers come back in and uh, create more competition for these major producers around the world. Yeah, but I do feel like they've got a bit complacent with the rise that we saw in in November. Do they not remember the collapse, the cataclysm that we saw over the price war in March and then the pandemic hit and they got doubly smacked? You know, surely Saudis and the Russians want to avoid what we saw back then, not make the same mistake twice. Yeah, well, that led to a price war, as you remember, in March. And I was in Vienna when the uh, when it all broke out. And they don't want a replay of that for sure. And, Julia, I think that's why I'm talking about these three different options on the table. And days gone by, I think Saudi Arabia would have said, uh, we're the de facto ruler. We say let it ride for another quarter. And that's the way it is. Uh, that's not the way it is anymore. Uh, Russia is suggesting let's uh, ease this way. Uh, through, and, and they're not doing it publicly. I'm hearing this on background and from other sources, uh, the vocal words to go forward. And there's a bigger issue at hand, Julia, uh, going forward. You know, Saudi Arabia is looking for the stability. It needs the rev- revenue to balance its budget. But the UAE, for example, is investing, that's where I'm sitting, $120 billion over five years to produce more oil. Russia makes money producing more oil. Uh, so this is going to be a tug of war during that energy transition where renewables start to rise and that money on Wall Street goes in at the same time. That's why this is a, a very difficult OPEC plus meeting. Yeah, it's not just about the next three to six months. There's a far bigger issues at play here. Mm. Two hours late. Let's hope they can come up with something. John Devteris, thank you so much for that, as always. And that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. We will see you tomorrow. Stay safe and uh, we'll be back. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.